Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of genitalia, as well as dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On Wednesday, June 30th, 1897, the police headquarters bustled with activity. Sweat-drenched officers booked unruly rabble-rousers. Photographers flashed their cameras for mugshots, the explosive bulbs causing frights throughout the building, and reporters crouched in corners, watching, waiting for anything that might be of interest to them. They wouldn't have to wait long. In those early hours of the day, one officer dragged in a gruff and somewhat threatening man, his face covered in hair. He kept calling out, asking why he was under arrest, but the officer didn't answer. As the people in the station looked at this man, they instantly knew why he had been detained, even if he was clueless. Trailing behind him were two reporters, members of William Randolph Hearst's wrecking crew. If Hearst's boys had led to this man's capture, that could only mean one thing. He was Herman Knack, the primary suspect in William Goldensup's gruesome murder. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solve Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solve Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on the murder of William Goldensup. In part one, we covered the discovery of a dismembered corpse and the race between two newspaper titans to identify the victim. In part two, we'll discuss the quest to catch Goldensup's killer and how this gruesome murder mystery shaped the journalism industry as we know it today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just 
bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On Saturday, June 26th, 1897, the severed torso of a man was found floating in the East River of New York City. The police were stumped, sure they'd never discovered the victim's identity, let alone his killer's. But an open murder case was like chum in the water for the hungry reporters of Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. They were determined to crack the case and make the front page. Through a dramatic series of investigations and leads, the papers were able to identify the victim as William Goldensup, a masseur who worked in one of the nicest Turkish baths in the city. According to his co-workers, he had taken Friday the 25th off to visit a house in the countryside with his woman, and he had never returned. The investigation discovered that Goldensup had been sleeping with a 38-year-old midwife named Augusta Knack. The pair met when Goldensup rented a room in Augusta's apartment, and they quickly began a romantic relationship. The only problem was that Augusta was married. Her husband, Herman Knack, was a delivery man for a bakery in Hell's Kitchen, and the affair provided him plenty of motive to kill Goldensup. Once reporters made this connection, Herman Knack quickly became their prime suspect. Hearst ordered two of the journal's strongest men to hunt Herman down and bring him to the captain of detectives. If they acted fast, they might very well get the first exclusive interview with the killer, placing the journal as the frontrunner in the newspaper wars. Two of Hearst's men and one on-duty policeman ambushed Herman Knack on his morning delivery route. They arrested him and brought him into police headquarters to be interrogated. Under normal circumstances, Herman would have been interviewed by a low-level detective. However, the Golden Sub case had grown to such fervor in the city, Herman was brought to the chief of the detective bureau himself, Captain Stephen O'Brien. O'Brien was a famously honest cop who'd been appointed to his position by noted police reformer Theodore Roosevelt. O'Brien had spent most of his career taking down the hardened gangs in New York's slums. Interrogating a simple bread delivery man was nothing to him. Well, Mr. Knack, you look almost as stale as that bread you drive around. The bread was fresh this morning. It was stale by the time it got to me cracked under the slightest pressure. Must have been a bad batch. Our bread doesn't usually crack. Uh-huh. You're married to Augusta Knack, 439 9th Avenue? On paper. Uh, we haven't lived together for two years now. Our last kid died and I moved out. Interesting. Have you ever met a Mr. William Goldensup? Yep. He boarded with us and when we still lived together. Him and Augusta got together just before I left. Thank God for that. Made leaving even easier for me. Hmm. Where were you last Friday? I went to work at 2 o'clock on Friday morning. I got my load of bread and left the bakery at 4 o'clock. My work was finished by 2.30 in the afternoon. And then? I don't know where I went after that. Is that my bread? Whoops. Looks like it's just crumbs now. 
You sure you don't know where you went? I guess I was drunk. And the next day? Saturday? Same story, pretty much. I got to work at 2, finished around 4, and then I went on a spree. A spree? Oh, I went to Strax and bowled with the boys and drank beer. I went back to my room in 82nd Street about 10 o'clock. I had a good load on when I went to bed Saturday night. <laughs> Where were you Sunday? <laughs> I was so drunk, I had to stay in bed nearly all Sunday. Your wife must be pretty cut up about all this. What the deuce do I care? When I left her, I never looked back. I love the bachelor life. To Captain O'Brien's trained ears, Herman Nax seemed to be telling the truth. He genuinely did not care about who his wife was sleeping with, and even though he was a drunk, it seemed he was the wrong drunk for this murder. To be safe, O'Brien sent some of his detectives to verify Herman's alibi. They spoke to Herman's boss at the bakery, who confirmed that he'd been at work both Friday and Saturday. Not only that, the bakery foreman and Herman had gone to the bar together and led the establishment in several hours of drinking songs. After tracking down some of the other patrons in the bar that night, it became clear that Herman Knack had an airtight alibi. He had not been murdering Golden Sup that weekend. He had been drinking a lot. With that, Herman Knack was removed from the suspect list. But if Herman had nothing to do with Golden Sup's death, Augusta looked all the more suspicious. Well, suspecting such a possibility, the police had already positioned a few detectives in a stakeout at Augusta's apartment. They had watched her all Wednesday as she cleaned her apartment, prepping to move out. Detective Croc had spoken to her landlord. It turned out Augusta had canceled her lease only two days earlier. She even booked passage on a boat back to Germany, her native country. It seemed she was making a fast getaway. Detective Croc and his partner were not about to let her leave. Detectives, I was just on my way out. I have lots of packing to do. That's okay. We'll only take a minute of your time. Now, Mrs. Knack, do you know William Goldensup? Yes, I know him. He is my man. At least, he was until Friday morning. When he came back from the bath and made me give him $50. Then we quarreled over a woman and he went away. Another woman, eh? Tell us about her. She's the widow of a local grocer. She'd been delivering food to us for a while, but about a week ago, I caught a glance of them kissing in the parlor room mirror. They thought I couldn't see them. <laughs> the nerve. This grocery hussy. When was the last time you saw her? Earlier today, in fact. She came by to grab some of William's belongings. I gave her a bit of my mind and told her that she had stolen William from me. I suppose she deserved it, huh? Certainly. Now, if I might be on my way. You're on your way, all right. You're way downtown with me. I'm being arrested? Whatever for? For being a dirty, rotten liar. As Augusta told her story, she hadn't realized one thing. The detectives had been watching her home all day long. They hadn't seen a single person approach her apartment at any point. Augusta's tale about the grocery girl was a complete fabrication. 
And as they brought her back to police headquarters, Captain O'Brien had even more surprises in store for her. You say you last saw Golden Sup when? On Saturday. He asked me for money a second time, then left. But I last heard from him yesterday. He sent two men to collect his clothing for him. Interesting. Send her in. Do you recognize this woman? No. I've never... Not you. Ma'am, do you recognize this woman? This is the woman who bought the oilcloth. I am sure of her. You haven't the slightest doubt? No. It is the lady. I know it. I remember her well because she was a fine-looking lady and better dressed than most people who come into my store. So, Augusta, this woman has identified you as having purchased oilcloth from her, which would seem to connect you to the murder of William Goldensup. That is impossible. Goldensup is still alive. Perhaps. And perhaps we've got something else to show you. Come with me. Earlier that same morning, Navy sailors had spotted a strange oilcloth-wrapped package in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, thumping against the USS Vermont. They retrieved it from the water and opened it to reveal two severed legs, Golden Sup's legs. The police had brought those legs to police headquarters and laid them out on a display table near the captain's office. He led Augusta in to stare at the rotting, dismembered limbs. So you don't know the woman who sold you oilcloth? Do you know those? How should I know? Augusta was proving to be an incredibly tough nut to crack. But while the detectives were focused on the person, the newspapers were focused on the place. Reporters for William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal had been present during all of these interrogations. They informed their boss that Augusta's apartment was empty and next month's lease was up for grabs. Upon hearing the news, Hearst himself hopped onto a bicycle and raced through the streets. He found Werner, the apartment's landlord, and made a generous offer for access to the apartment. Werner agreed, and Hearst quickly barked out orders to the dozens of reporters with him on his wrecking crew. Gentlemen, the only people who get through these doors will be policemen and journal reporters. Blockade the building, blockade the block, blockade the entire neighborhood if you have to. Just keep those world dinguses out of here. In fact, find every payphone in the area and cut the cords. Word of what we find here must be kept here. With that extravagant show of power, Hearst took control of Augusta's apartment. That night, the front page of his evening journal would read, Murder mystery solved by the journal, Mrs. Knack, murderess. The police searched the premises with Hearst present. He included whatever evidence they found in his story, but ironically, the most significant evidence was turned up by the very world reporters Hearst had sought to keep out. While Hearst and his wrecking crew searched the apartment, world reporters searched the neighborhood and met an undertaker's assistant named George Vokroth. He claimed that on the Saturday after Golden Sub's disappearance, Augusta had come to the undertaker's office at 10 in the morning, asking to rent a horse and a surrey. The rental terms were set, and Augusta left, saying her man would be by to pick up the horse and carriage later that day. At 3.30 p.m., a man did show up at the undertaker's, but it wasn't William Goldensup or Herman Knack. Instead, 
It was a short German man with an angry expression, dark hair, and a curly cue mustache. It seemed Augusta was involved with a third man. As reporters began to spread this description throughout the neighborhood, Augusta's neighbors had plenty of gossip to share. This angry, dark-haired man was a German barber named Fred. Most of the neighbors thought Fred was a fake name. But while his name was fake, he was very real, and he had actually been a boarder in Augusta's home while Golden Sup lived there. Apparently, Fred stayed in the apartment for several months, until one day in February, Golden Sup beat Fred to a bloody pulp and gave him a vicious black eye. It seemed Augusta had been cheating on Golden Sup with the other boarder, and Golden Sup was not pleased. The neighbors had not seen Fred since that night, almost four months prior, so it seems strange that he would suddenly reappear to drive a horse and buggy for Augusta. Perhaps Augusta had continued the affair even after Fred was beaten half to death by Goldensup. And perhaps this lover's triangle was the perfect motive for Goldensup's slaying. All the pieces seemed to be coming together. Now detectives just needed to find Goldensup's head, the crime scene, and the real name of a man called Fred. In time, they would find two out of three. When we return, the third suspect is identified. And now, back to our story. By the night of Wednesday, June 30th, 1897, William Randolph Hearst's evening journal declared, Murder mystery solved by the journal. Mrs. Knack, murderess. It had been less than a week since William Goldensup's severed torso was discovered in the East River. And already... Hearst claimed he knew all of the events that had led to his death. Yet, there were still many loose threads left hanging. Joseph Pulitzer's New York World seized the opportunity to undermine Hearst's case, publishing their own stories claiming Goldensup might still be alive, just as Augusta had claimed to the police. Pulitzer had no intention of proving these doubts. In fact, his staff was well aware of the identification that Goldensup's co-workers had made based on his unique genitalia, but Pulitzer didn't care about the facts. Instead, Pulitzer was simply trying to buy time so he could be the one to catch Augusta's unidentified lover, a German barber who went by the pseudonym Fred. World reporters scrambled through Hell's Kitchen, but for all of their efforts, they would once again be scooped. Not by the journal, but by Captain O'Brien. Welcome to headquarters, ma'am. My men tell me you have some valuable information for me. What's your name? My name is Sophie Miller. I've known Mr. and Mrs. Knack for about five years. I worked for the Knacks in their delicatessen store on 10th Avenue. Did you know William Goldensup? I knew him very well. The last time I saw Willie was on Thursday. He and Augusta came to the hotel where I work and ate dinner. Have you seen Augusta since then? Well, on Saturday I knocked on her door and she wasn't home. Her neighbor said she hadn't been home all day. Then I saw Augusta twice, once at the grocery store later that evening and once when we had her over for dinner the next day. I asked her both times where Willie was and she said she hadn't seen him since Friday. Did she say they were fighting? No, quite the opposite. She said they weren't fighting. She was very clear that she didn't know where he was. 
She told us a very different story. In fact, there's one missing piece we were hoping you could fill in for us. Augusta had a second boarder who had a fight with Willie back in February. We've heard him called Fred, but no one seems to know his real name. I know his name. It's Martin. Martin Thorne. And just like that, the police had named their next suspect. Sophie told the police that Martin worked as a barber at a shop in Midtown. Captain O'Brien needed a man he could trust to investigate with discretion. As such, he ordered his old partner, Detective James McCauley, to canvas the neighborhood and find any information he could about Martin Thorne. Detective McCauley spent the next day hopping from barbershop to barbershop. He found the barbers were much more willing to talk if he was sitting in the chair, so he sat down for a straight razor shave in every shop he entered. By late afternoon, his face was red and raw with a razor burn. He rubbed his skin gingerly as he approached Vogel's Barbershop on 47th and 6th. He wished he could quit and save himself the pain, but he had a murderer to catch. Detective, you look a little red in the face. What are you here for? I'll have a shave and conversation, if you don't mind. You wouldn't happen to know a barber named Thorne, would you? Ah, Martin Thorne. As soon as I saw Mrs. Knack had been arrested, I thought about Thorne right away. Why is that? He and Knack were very close. He was the brooding sort, great pinochle player and top-tier barber. But he always was a cad with women. He had a particular thing for widows. Until I read in the papers that Mr. Knack was still alive, I thought Mrs. Knack was a widow. Her boarding ad claimed she was a widow anyway. So Augusta was just his type, and Golden Sup was the only thing in the way. Oh yeah, for months. He'd come in laughing at Golden Sup because he and Augusta had been getting together on the sly. But then in February, he got found out. Accidentally left his suspenders in Augusta and Golden Sup's bed. So Golden Sup gave him a beating and sent him on his way. But if she preferred Thorn, why didn't she have Golden Sup leave instead? Ah, see, she was afraid of him. He was big, strong, and you skipped the best part of the beaten story. When Golden Sub found them, he threatened to kill both of them in a rage. Thorn had expected a confrontation, so he pulled out a revolver. A revolver? He said he pulled the trigger, but the gun wouldn't go off. Golden Sub took it and beat him with it, then kicked him out. After that, Thorne said, no pistol for me after this. I'm going to get a dagger or a knife. I'll catch him sometime when he isn't expecting me, and then I'll fix him. <laughs> I guess he finally fixed him. And he thought Augusta would be all for him after that. What was he thinking? The man was always dreaming. Said he'd marry her someday. He used to talk about trips he made out to Long Island with Mrs. Neck looking for a house where she could set up a baby farm and he'd run a barber shop. You know if they found one? I think they might have had one out in Woodside, very small town. Woodside. I think I've heard that name before. One of Golden Sup's friends and co-workers had told the police that Golden Sup planned to meet Augusta at a house in the countryside. That house was said to have been located near Woodside. 
Now the police had two people pointing them towards Woodside. They dispatched detectives to the small town to survey the area and hopefully find the crime scene. But when they arrived in the area, they realized how difficult this task might be. Houses were fairly spread apart, and those with occupants weren't likely to be the murder house, and the houses that were empty could not be searched without probable cause. They spent days wandering the town looking for clues, and by Saturday, July 3rd, it began to feel like a wild goose chase. That is, until a nearby farmer remembered a strange thing that had happened with his domesticated ducks on the previous Saturday. Henry Valla lived in a house on 2nd and Anderson. A 200-foot-long field sat between his home and his neighbors, and his ducks had made a habit of crossing that field to wander around his neighbor's property. On that fateful Saturday, the day after Golden Sup's disappearance, his ducks returned from his neighbor's property, only this time they were sick. The ducks were hacking their little duck lungs, coughing up puke. As Henry looked at their feathers, they were slicked with a strange, thick substance, coated slightly red. Henry wanted to see what they had been swimming in, so he crossed the field to the open drain across the way. Water was flowing out of the drain pipe from the house on 346 Second Street. This was odd, because the house was vacant, and yet it seemed as if every faucet in the house had been turned on. To make matters stranger, a thick red substance was pooling just at the bottom of the pipe. This must have been what his docks were swimming in. Not wanting to disturb the peace, Henry returned to his ducks and cordoned them off away from the drain. He forgot about the whole thing until the police had started sniffing around. Then he realized his information might be helpful. And it certainly was. Detectives contacted Mrs. Hafner, the caretaker of the home. When shown a picture of Augusta Knack and Martin Thorne, Mrs. Hafner said they had signed a year lease on the house, only they had done so under the names of Mr. and Mrs. Frank Braun. They were supposed to move in the day before, but she had not seen them in over a week. This made a lot of sense to the detectives. After all, Augusta was in police custody, and Martin Thorne was in the wind. Mrs. Hafner let the detectives into the house. It was drab and dusty, with a cheap brown paint flaking off the walls. It hadn't been occupied in two months, and most of the building's two floors and seven rooms were empty. Yet, a few things stood out on the detectives' first pass. The fireplace was filled with ash. It seemed someone had stoked it to its maximum heat, and within the ash was the steel shank of a man's shoe. It seemed someone had used the fireplace to dispose of clothing. Of course, it was impossible to determine if it had been Augusta and Thorne or the previous tenants two months earlier, but detectives certainly had their suspicions. A brief search of the second-floor bedroom revealed an empty wine bottle and a cardboard box that once held bullets. Then, as detectives ventured into the second-floor bathroom, they noticed many strange things. For one, it was nearly spotless. Someone had bothered to do a deep cleaning, even as the rest of the house gathered dust. Additionally, the only thing in the room was a large zinc tub. It had been carefully cleaned, but it appeared to have some scalding marks on the exterior, 
as if someone had set a fire underneath, perhaps to boil the water inside. One of the detectives had been a plumber, and as he thought of the unfortunate drainage outside, he figured there might be some evidence left in the tub's drain itself. He removed the tub's trap and inside found a rotten-smelling mush. The crime lab later determined it was a mixture of plaster and blood. According to the water meter, somehow the house had used 40,000 gallons of water in the last month, three times the amount that an ordinary family would use in a year. The water supplier stated the only possible explanation was that every single faucet in the house had been left running on full for several days. It seemed Augusta and Thorne had desperately tried to wash away their crimes. But a couple of ducks and a policeman with plumbing experience had found the blood left behind. As detectives searched the house, reporters for Pulitzer's World had tailed them to the location. They began interviewing the neighbors and townsfolk about everything they'd seen in the week before. Several neighbors said they had seen Augusta and a gentleman arrive on a trolley and enter the house on Friday, the day of Goldensup's disappearance. They said they had also seen another man arrive a few hours earlier. Most suspiciously, they had seen Augusta leave the house with only one of the men, but the other had never been seen leaving the house at all. After all of this evidence piled up, there was no question left. This was the house where William Goldensup was murdered. After this discovery, Pulitzer's world reversed its position. While it had focused many articles undermining the journal's Golden Sup theory, now they were the first to the scene of the crime. Now they had the scoop. With the address of the murder house printed, people swarmed to it the next day, Sunday, the 4th of July. An ordinary holiday celebration turned into a grim game of hide-and-seek as thousands picked through the area searching for Golden Sup's still missing head. But while the public searched for the head, Captain O'Brien was searching for the second killer. Various rumors and clues had indicated that Martin Thorne was still in the city, but had shaved his distinctive mustache and was lying low. O'Brien knew Thorne would stay hidden until he felt safe, so the captain decided to use the media to his advantage. Well, Hurst, I must admit, your reporters have done a great job helping us solve this case. Your work has been invaluable. Glad to hear you finally admit it. You cops are often reticent to share the glory, especially if you don't deserve any glory yourselves. Well, perhaps my predecessors were that way, but not me. Credit where credit is due. Hey, if you'll be fair, I'll be fair too. In fact, maybe you could help me out. My men are a little behind on Thorn. Have you guys got any leads on him? Best info we've got is that he fled the city on a cruiser. We'll likely never see him again. Wow, that's a bombshell if I've ever heard one. Do you mind if I print that? I'll print it either way, but I figured I'd be polite and ask first. Well, I appreciate the gesture. Go ahead and print. It won't make a difference. Of course, O'Brien knew it would make all the difference. The journal used it as an opportunity to praise their own work and demean their competition. They readily published O'Brien's comments in full, saying that Martin Thorne had likely fled the country. Thorne would read that claim and feel he was finally in the clear, just as O'Brien intended. But Thorne's overconfidence 
would soon prove to be his downfall. We'll close the case when we return. Now, back to the story. On Monday, July 5th, 1897, more than a week after the discovery of William Goldensup's dismembered torso, William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal continued to print Captain O'Brien's belief that Martin Thorne had fled the country. O'Brien intentionally fed the journal false information to lure Thorne out of hiding. By Tuesday, July 6th, O'Brien's efforts had paid off. An anxious young woman had dragged her unwilling husband down to the precinct. Her husband was John Gotha, a lanky German barber and one of Martin Thorne's co-workers and pinochle buddies. The day before, Gotha had seen Martin for the first time in two weeks. I was at work. He sat down in my chair and said one word, haircut. He shaved his mustache and changed his hat, but I could tell it was him. That was it? That's all he said? When I finished the cut, he put the payment in my hands and left, but he also gave me a note with the cash that read, Meet me at the corner. So you went to the corner? We met and went to the saloon. As we drank... He told me everything. He did it. He and his woman killed Golden Sub together. Do you know where he's hiding? No, but we're supposed to meet again tonight, a quarter after nine. Looks like you'll be bringing a plus one. That night, John Goda waited near the soda fountain at Spears Drugstore in Harlem on 125th and 8th. The heat was killer, and a group of men dressed like common laborers sat sweating around the store. Finally, around 9.15, another man emerged from the dark street. He was clean and well-dressed, and as he approached the store, he waved at John Gotha. Hey, let's go take a drink from the soda fountain. Nah, I don't want a drink. You go along by yourself. Gotha slunk into the darkness of the night and motioned at the workmen. In the blink of an eye, four men leapt into action. They pushed the well-dressed man against the wall and searched his pockets before clasping handcuffs around his wrists. What's your name? I'm Martin Thorne. And I'm Inspector O'Brien. You're under arrest for the murder of William Goldensup. O'Brien and his men brought Thorne downtown to interrogate the suspected murderer for the first time. He was cold and confident and he gave his answers as if he expected to give them for quite some time. You shaved your mustache recently. Last Wednesday. Huh. Same day Augusta Knack was arrested. Could that be why? Purely coincidental. I see. Where have you been, Thorn? I at present live in a furnished room at number 235 East 25th Street. I have not seen William Goldensup since I was assaulted by him at the house of Mrs. Knack. I've been meeting with her two or three times a week ever since, up until Tuesday night. Mrs. Knack spoke to me about leaving Goldensup and buying me a barber shop in the country. She agreed to leave Goldensup and live with me. Fascinating. You've answered several of my questions without having to be asked. I am thorough. Now, when was the last time you saw Mrs. Knack, and what did you talk about? 
The night of Tuesday, June 29th, just before her arrest. We went to Central Park and sat on a bench until 11 p.m. I told her the papers claimed to have found pieces of Golden Sup's body. She said they could not have because Golden Sup was still alive. I went to see her the next day but found out she had been arrested so I kept my head down. Quite the interesting story, Thorn. Only, you couldn't have talked to Augusta about Golden Sup on Tuesday night. Why's that? His name didn't appear in the papers until the next day. Just like Augusta Knack, Thorne's stories were filled with falsehoods and fabrications. Through careful police work, O'Brien and his men compiled a solid timeline of Augusta and Thorne's movements on Golden Sup's fateful weekend. Thorne and Augusta had rented the house in Woodside. They also rented the undertaker's carriage. On Friday, June 25th, Thorne was seen entering the house in Woodside. Later that day, Augusta and Goldensup were seen arriving together. Goldensup was never seen again, while Augusta and Thorne were seen bringing their rented carriage to the house and later boarding a ferry. On the day they left, a neighbor's ducks wandered into the open drain, which was spewing a mixture of blood and plaster. It seemed like an open and shut case, but two things were still missing. Augusta's motive and Goldensup's head. Pulitzer's New York World made a great show of searching for the head. They hired the world's preeminent professional diver at the time and assisted the police with expansive trolling of New York's riverbeds. This search would cost many days and thousands of dollars, but ultimately, Golden Sup's head was never found. Augusta's motive, on the other hand, became clear with a little more questioning of her husband, Herman Knack. The journal's reporters were the first to pick up the story. She's an abortionist. Does dozens of procedures each year. In the time we were married, she even killed two unwitting women and covered it up. When her daughter died, she was driving me away. I, I threatened to spill it all. And she threatened to kill me, too. Even tried to hire one of my friends to do it. Golden Sup knew what she did. and It's how she made her money. My guess, he threatened her too, and she thought it was time to silence him for good. After a brief investigation, Herman's accusations rang true. Augusta had offered to pay one of her friends to murder him, and bits of circumstantial evidence piled up to indicate that she was an experienced abortionist, conditioned to handle blood and death. After all, her door did read, Licensed Midwife. Yet New York City didn't license midwives, and Augusta had never reported a single live birth to the government. She did not deal in life, she dealt in death, and Golden Sup had been murdered to keep her activities in the shadows. With all of this evidence piled up against them, Martin Thorne and Augusta Knack were ready to be tried for murder. As they awaited their day in court, they became instant celebrities, reporters and commoners, rushing to the prison gates to ogle at these horrific killers. Augusta seized the opportunity and charged each person 25 cents to see her in her prison cell. Martin simply ignored those who clambered at his doors. Months passed as the courts prepared, and finally, on November 9th, 1897, Martin Thorne's trial began. And a surprise witness took the stand. Augusta Knack. Up until this point, Augusta had insisted Goldensup was still alive. But after some prodding from her lawyer, 
she had decided to turn state's witness. She took the stand and testified that Martin Thorne had killed Goldensup and that he had threatened to kill her if she didn't help him dispose of the body. Thorne's defense attorney poked many holes in Augusta's story. Then, following her betrayal, Martin testified that she had killed Goldensup on her own. But this made little difference to the jury. By the end of the trial, Thorne was found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death. He was executed via electric chair on August 1st, 1898. Augusta, on the other hand, had entered a plea bargain and was merely convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 15 years in prison. She was released from prison on July 19, 1907, 10 years after the murder. While some members of the public thought justice had been served and that Augusta Knack had served the proper time for the proper crime, many detectives who had worked the case thought differently. Augusta had successfully pinned the murder on Thorne in court, but her testimony was filled with lies. The physical evidence available indicated a much more sinister act of a sinister couple working together to end the life of William Goldensup. His last day on earth was one of deep betrayal. On Friday, June 25th, 1897, Goldensup sat on the train with his lover of nearly three years. She smiled at him as they looked out across the passing countryside. He believed they had acquired a sensational deal on a house in the country, and he and Augusta would finally settle down and live a peaceful and quiet life together. As the train stopped in Woodside, Goldensup opened the carriage door and helped Augusta to the ground, a romantic gesture that drew the envious gaze of the neighbors, who wished their husbands were as chivalrous as the strapping Dutchman. The couple walked hand in hand to the home at 346 Second Street. Goldensup beamed as he saw the building for the first time. Sure, it was a little run down, but it was almost exactly as he had imagined. He could fix it up and they could start their new life together. Augusta unlocked the door and gave Goldensup a tour of the house. The tour culminated in the second floor bedroom, where Augusta had left a celebratory bottle of wine. The couple drank the bottle, talking about their plans for the future. Then, to celebrate once more, Augusta removed Goldensup's shirt, unbuckled his pants, and the two engaged in intercourse. Yet Augusta herself had not undressed, and in the throes of passion while Goldensup least expected it, she withdrew a knife from between the folds of her dress. She stabbed him twice, once in the collarbone, once in the heart. He tried to fight, punching Augusta in the arms with such strength, her bruises would be plainly visible to medical examiners who observed her after her arrest. Goldensup may have been able to fight her off, if not for one thing. Martin Thorne had stood, patient and silent, in the bedroom's closet the entire time. Witnessing the struggle, Martin emerged from the darkness and drew a revolver, pulling back the hammer. Then he fired, shooting Goldensup square in the head. Augusta climbed off of her former lover's dead body, pulled up her panties, and embraced Martin Thorne. Then the couple lugged Goldensup to the bathroom and placed him in the tub, his blood spilling down the drain. Martin got to work, hacking Goldensup to pieces. 
He carved the tattoo off of Golden Sup's chest, then cut him into manageable chunks for easy disposal. He allowed the blood to completely drain, minimizing potential leakage as they moved his body parts to their future dump sites. He then took Golden Sup's head and covered it in plaster. His intent was to make identifying Golden Sup as difficult as possible, and by coating the head, he could ensure that it would sink. Additionally, should it ever be discovered, the plaster removal process would surely damage Golden Sup's facial features, making his identification even more difficult. The couple left that night in order to establish an alibi. They returned the next day, Saturday, June 26th, with the undertaker's surrey and bundles of oilcloth. Thorne and Augusta wrapped each individual piece of golden sup in paper, burlap, and oilcloth, then surreptitiously loaded them onto the carriage. They left the water running in the house to clear golden sup's blood from the drains, not realizing the blood had already mixed with the plaster used to coat golden sup's head. Its increased thickness would keep it in the drain for later discovery. The couple then drove the carriage to the nearest ferry. They directed the horse onto the rear of the boat and stayed near the back end. As the ferry carried them and a crowd of people down the East River, Augusta kept watch up front and waited for her chance to signal Thorn. Luckily for them, a great brass band could be heard playing for the grand opening of the Third Street Pier. The festivities drew the rest of the ferry passengers to the front of the boat, leaving Thorn free to dispose of the evidence. He dropped Golden Sup's legs in first, the ferry's wake pushing them far to the north, where they would be found over one week later. Next, he dropped the head. It hit the water with a nice hard plunk and quickly sank to the bottom, never to be seen again. And finally, Thorn threw Golden Sup's upper torso off the bow. The package hit the water with a loud splash and began to float away. Thorn watched it bob and smiled as the ferry pulled him and his murderous lover into port. Thorn didn't realize the tide would bring Golden Sup's floating torso closer to the 11th Street Pier, where preteen boys were playing. And not 15 minutes after he threw that torso overboard, those boys would bring it back to shore. After disembarking from the ferry, the two drove uptown. When they reached a secluded section of the woods, they dumped Golden Sup's lower torso in a ravine, where they believed no one would ever find it. His happily ever after was a happily ever after no more. With Golden Sup torn to pieces, Thorn executed by electric chair, and Augusta imprisoned, their morbid love triangle was a tragic game in which every player lost. Every player, that is, except for William Randolph Hearst. Prior to Golden Sup's discovery, Pulitzer's New York World was the city's number one newspaper by a wide margin. However, Hearst used the sensational nature of Golden Sup's case to propel his New York Journal and Evening Journal to the top of the city's newspaper heap. After Golden Sup's murder, the New York Journal and Evening Journal set worldwide records, becoming the single most widely circulated paper in all of human history up to that point. Because Hearst had published the Golden Sup theory first, he had forced Pulitzer into a defensive position, fighting a losing battle. 
The two newspaper titans grappled head-to-head for the next decade, but the Golden Sup murder put Pulitzer so far behind his competition, his paper never regained the status it once held. Eventually, Hearst forced Pulitzer to call a truce and pushed him out of the yellow journalism game and back into the world of respectable reporting. Left without any competition, William Randolph Hearst became one of the most powerful people on the planet. Most notably, he used this power to publish fake news, which some have argued helped push the United States into the Spanish-American War. He deliberately stoked tensions that led to a war solely to increase the circulation of his paper. And it worked. Hearst's actions eventually pushed people to re-examine the power of yellow journalism and reconstruct the media as they knew it, implementing journalistic standards of integrity, many of which have lasted to this day. And yet, while he was alive, Hearst was at the top of the world. And it was all thanks to an oilcloth-wrapped package found floating in the tepid waters of the East River. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. For more information on the murder of William Goldensup, amongst the many sources we used, we found Paul Collins' book, The Murder of the Century, the Gilded Age crime that scandalized a city and sparked the tabloid wars, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify's making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Solved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders exclusively on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Giles Hovseth with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Kai Jordan, Rebecca Thomas, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 